Well, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some stories about Elijah. And the reason for that is, those of you who come on a Sunday evening and in the studies that we've been doing in Mark's Gospel, Elijah crops up quite a lot, doesn't he? Last week, we were on the Transfiguration, and there we saw Jesus with Moses and Elijah. And John the Baptist was compared, they, they thought, are you Elijah come back again? So I thought it'd be useful just to look at uh, some of the stories of Elijah in the Bible and get a feel for why Elijah is one of the, if you like, the, the big prophet names in the Bible. So we're going to look today at chapter 17, the, the brook and the widow. Next week we'll go on to the famous, what's called the barbecue challenge on, um, on the mount. And then the week after we'll look at Elijah in the cave from the high to the low. So that's the, um, that's the, three, the three weeks. And so let's turn today to um, 1 Kings. We'll start at the end of chapter 16 to set the scene, and then we'll read chapter 17 as well. So 1 Kings chapter 16 on page 298 of the Bible. At verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastwards and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. 
And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, we thank you for the richness of your word, but we also thank you for its simplicity. And we thank you that as we come to it this morning, you show that you are indeed the true God. So we ask that you will speak to us, each one, as we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know how many of you are on Facebook. I think that's a bit old hat now. Is Facebook old hat? Charlotte's nodding, so it must be old hat. But I've been getting notifications over the last three weeks. Really, every day this thing pops up on my screen, notifying me of an event that's going to take place this morning. And it involves, and I'll quote here so that I get it right, it involves singing great songs, reflections, poems, tea and cake, sounding good. It's designed to help yourself and others to live better, to help often, and wonder more. And then it says, all in a non-religious setting. So where is this? Well, it's this morning at 11.30, downstairs in the Life Center. It's called the Sunday Assembly, and 
It's a church without God. And as I've been reading that, I've been thinking how sad is that, that they have to have an event, and the big strap line is a non-religious setting. So here we are upstairs worshipping and praising God and learning about Him, and downstairs there's an event where God is excluded completely. And in many ways, that's a reflection of today's society, isn't it? It's so-called progressive, but God is deemed to be irrelevant, and it's all about the individual. There's this thing about we don't need God anymore. And that's today, but as we come to our text this morning, we're actually transported back to a time which at that time would also have been called progressive, because it was a time when God was irrelevant, when doing your own thing and seeking your own pleasure prevailed. That was the time that we're going to look into this morning. But as we do look into this, I think it's important to just stand back and think, what are we actually learning, looking for here? And while this is a story about a time then and a story about um, Elijah, we have to remember that our learning from these kind of stories is not really about Elijah, but it serves to remind us that God is God, and what we are thinking about today is what can we learn about God through these stories? Because the God of Elijah's time is the same as our God today. His character hasn't changed, and the lessons that were there then are lessons as much for us today. So that's the thing in mind. What are we going to learn about God? And we'll see that this morning as we go through this, because in many ways this is the training school for Elijah reminding him about God before he comes to the big contest next week. So I'm going to um, look at this in, in three headings. Firstly, God's Word rejected. Secondly, God's Word removed. And then God's Word received. I was asking the diggers what the word was that came up most in the passage, and they were going to think about it. Did you come up with an answer? No. God's Word rejected, God's Word removed, God's Word received. It's all about God's Word, isn't it? And we see moving from God's Word being rejected to God's Word being received. So let's follow it through. And we're introduced to um, King Ahab at the end of chapter 16. And by human standards, he was a very successful king. It says there he reigned for 22 years. The land was very prosperous. But there's a big but. From a human perspective, it all looked to be going well. But then we read God's viewpoint, don't we? If you go back to verse 30, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Now that's not an epitaph you really want on your tombstone, is it? It's not something that you want to be in the Guinness Book of Records for. But what had he done? Well, it tells us briefly there. It says that um, he had walked in the sins of Jeroboam. Now, if you remember Jeroboam, was the king who, when the kingdom split, who stopped the people of Israel going to worship in Jerusalem because he built his own idols. He was an idol worshiper. And so Ahab followed in these sins. Then Ahab took as his wife Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was from this place called Sidon, so that was not in Israel, that was far away. So um, Jezebel was a foreigner. And God had already warned the folk not to marry foreign wives. 
And the reason was that she brought with her um, this religion, this Baal religion, which was all about worshipping idols. It was all about pleasure. It was all about sexual pleasure. Baal was the god of fertility, which included the rain and, and bringing crops. Uh, and that's who Baal was. So he had married Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a baddie. She was the one who wore the trousers in the relationship, as we say, and we'll come on to see that. We'll come on to see that next week. And then the third thing that had happened in his time at the very end, this thing about Jericho being rebuilt. Um, again, if you remember, when the Israelites moved into the Promised Land, remember the walls of Jericho, it fell down, and there was a command then not to rebuild the city. But in Ahab's time, this other person went and, and rebuilt the city. So there we have um, three things that um, Ahab had sinned against. And it's no wonder in, in verse 33, I think you get, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So it seems that Ahab very much had departed from God's word, hadn't he? He had sinned. He had allowed Jericho to rebuild. It's almost as if he was saying, well, the word of God doesn't really matter anymore. Um, I can do what I like. We don't need God anymore. And the word of God was rejected. And what did God do about this? Well, into this he sent his prophet Elijah and his word. And I think if you notice at the beginning of um, chapter 17, we have Elijah arriving. We don't know anything about him because that's not important. It's not about Elijah. It's about God. And he preaches probably one of the shortest sermons ever in verse 1, where he says, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, of course, this is a word coming from God. It's a word to Ahab and Jezebel. Um, it's a word, again, they choose to ignore. And as we read that, we might be saying to ourselves, well, that, that must be a pretty harsh thing for Elijah to come and say um, to Ahab. Because no rain is a bad thing. If you don't have rain, you don't have crops. And in these days, there was no other alternative. If the rain wasn't there, then there were no crops at all. And so I think we probably ask ourselves, was this a random harsh punishment? And the answer to that has got to be no, because Ahab had sinned, and the people of Israel were God's chosen people. They were God's covenant people who he wanted to live as his people. You see, if God had done nothing, it would suggest that he didn't care. It would suggest that it was okay to go and worship other gods. But in fact, what they were doing was spiritual adultery. You can have no other gods but me. And moreover, this particular judgment had been warned about. If you can turn back to me briefly to Deuteronomy chapter 11, and if we just read this wee paragraph starting at verse 13, and if you will indeed be my commandments then I command, that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, 
the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship him. Then the anger of the Lord shall be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So there's a clear promise from God if, we, if the people obeyed him, but there's also a clear warning if the people didn't obey him. And I think that's both an encouragement, isn't it, and uh, a warning to us, because as we look around the world today, we are probably asking the same question, where is God at times? Where is God in Gaza? In our progressive society, where is God? Is God on the way out? Well, I think this first part here reminds us that God is very patient, and He gives us all and everyone the opportunity to come and turn round to Him. But there comes a time when if God's Word is rejected, then God's patience will run out. God will indeed act, and He will judge, and He will keep all His promises, but in His good time. So, God's Word was obviously rejected, and it's important to understand that because that's the setting for this and the next um, two weeks. And so, we come on to God's Word being removed because in the following two scenes, we see God's Word moving, moving from Israel across to Sidon. And as well as God's Word being moved, what we see here is Elijah being prepared for the big confrontation that he is going to have when we come next week um, to the challenge in Mount Carmel. So we have Elijah, he's, he's come, he's given this warning, and obviously he's going to be in grave danger, isn't he? So God issues a command, notice it's God's Word again, God's Word again, to go away to the brook Cherith, where in the midst of the famine there would be water, and there would be food brought by ravens. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem an obvious promise that. Um, not clear what kind of food ravens would provide, and after all, ravens were unclean birds, um, so it's a bit strange. But Elijah obeys, and the promise is kept, and he gets fed twice a day until the book dries up. Now, we don't know how long Elijah was there. It doesn't tell us, but it must have been pretty boring, I'd imagine, wondering what was going to happen next and waiting. But again, I think it was a lesson for Elijah. As the food was provided twice a day, just as God had said, it was a reminder that Elijah had to trust and obey, but also a reminder that God is in control of events, that God would protect and provide. But I think there's more going on here than just God moving Elijah um, out of danger, away from Jezebel and Ahab. Because if we remember that the prophet is the bearer of God's Word, that's why he comes, then when the prophet moves, the Word of God moves with him. In this case, the Word of God is moving away from Ahab and the people of Israel as Elijah moves away. So God is removing His Word and His blessing. See, Israel's judgment is not just the physical drought of the land, 
but it's also the spiritual drought of the silence of the Lord. And that's the judgment that is taking place here. And that's a terrible judgment, isn't it? Because I think the worst famine we could have is a famine of the Word of God. But there's a lesson for us here as well as there was for Elijah. Because yes, of course, we know God is everywhere. We know we can't escape God, can we? But will God bless us if our attitude to God's Word becomes lukewarm? The Bible talks in many places about God's Word being a gift and a blessing, not a right. And so it's not to be taken lightly, whether as individuals or as a church. Now, we're privileged every week we get the Word preached. We come together on a Sunday evening, most Sundays, and we study the Word. And that's good. But isn't it so easy sometimes to have a Bible and not to read it or not to try and understand it? Isn't it easy to become intermittent in our prayer life? But this is a reminder that we need to use God's Word and treasure it. I'm sure we've all had experiences, I know I have, when you maybe feel spiritually dry, you maybe feel far away from God. And I know it sometimes happens to me, and then I go um, on a trip, say, to the Keswick Convention for a week, and you hear God's Word preached for a week. Or sometimes we come back to our evening gatherings here and really get stuck into God's Word. And you really feel that's the place you should be. The spiritual dryness disappears when we come back um, to God's Word. And I think it's true for many churches and denominations as well today. When the Word of God isn't taken seriously or when it's redefined or when it's reinterpreted to be relevant to the present age, is it any surprise that God removes His blessing in situations like that? Is that maybe a silent judgment on those who turn away from Him? And it's so prevalent these days, isn't it? You know, we kind of, or not we here, but, you know, churches will maybe say, well, we're not going to preach miracles anymore because scientists don't like miracles. We'll just kind of ignore that bit of the Bible. And it's not surprising in situations like that that God's blessing is not there on churches. So God's Word is removed, but God looks after His servants, sustaining the person who, who trusts Him. So God's Word is rejected, and therefore God's Word is removed. And the final scene where we, perhaps surprisingly, we see that God's Word is received. Because again, God speaks to Elijah. The brook runs dry, and he's on the move again. Another command, which Elijah trusts and obeys. And where is he going? Well, he's going to a funny place called Zarephath in Sidon. Now, does Sidon ring a bell from where we started the reading? Who, is, um, who came from Sidon? Jezebel, yes, the wife came from Sidon. So, this is no random place that God is sending Elijah. Well, because God doesn't do random anyway, does He? But Sidon, being where Jezebel came from, God is taking Elijah into the heart of enemy territory. But again, with a promise to Elijah that he would be looked after. And not only is it into the heart of enemy territory, but it's also to an unlikely person, because it's to a widow and her son. And widows, you wouldn't expect to be able to help at all. Widows would, would have nothing. 
But this was God's promise to Elijah that the widow would sustain Elijah, and it's a kind of unbelievable promise. What could she do to help Elijah? Because she only had enough left for one meal before dying. So Elijah arrives and meets the widow, and I sometimes think that Elijah maybe didn't have a lot of pastoral sensitivity because he's going in asking for a meal, and the the widow is going to prepare her last meal. And Elijah says, well, no, you go and uh, make something for me first, some water and, and some bread, not very sensitive. But Elijah can make this request because it's backed by God's promise. If you look at verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So there we have this widow thinking she's about to die, thinks she's about to pay her last meal. She has Elijah's promise that the jar will not be spent and the, the flour will not be spent. So what does she do? She obeys Elijah. And she is fed and she has kept being fed for a long time. So Elijah trusts and obeyed. He was walking by faith and not by sight. And the widow does something similarly. She trusts and obeys. And she has food aplenty. As I read this, I don't know about you, but um, these, these commands of Elijah are, to obey are very far-fetched in a way, aren't they? The first one, go and, um, go and the ravens will feed you. My goodness, how's that going to happen? Then go to Sidon and a widow will feed you. Well, my goodness, how that's going to happen. But Elijah obeys. He takes this leaf of faith. And it's sometimes easy for us, I think, isn't it, to trust and obey God when, when it's a sort of easy thing to do. We're quite good at saying God is good all the time when things happen the way we want it to happen. But it's not so easy when trusting requires a leap of faith. When God takes our props away, then do we really trust and obey his word? There's a challenge in there for us. So this is a lovely story, isn't it, of the woman, but we have right in the middle of Baal territory, a widow trusts in Yahweh, and Yahweh provides her daily needs. Now, was this woman being naive? She had nothing, but what she was prepared to do was to choose to believe, and she did that, and she was rewarded. And so we have this contrast, don't we, at the beginning of the story where the word of the Lord came to Ahab and his wife amongst God's people, and they chose to reject it. And then here we have the word of God coming to a poor widow in a foreign territory who chose to accept and believe it, and she was richly blessed. It's a simple illustration of faith, isn't it? We may know much more theology and apologetics than this woman ever did, we may, might think we're more sophisticated nowadays, but at the end of the day, real faith consists in leaning completely on the Word of God. And so, that's not the end of the story, though, is it? We come on to the last section, briefly, verse section 17 to 24. 
Because I don't know how you felt as we read that. Here's the widow and we're going, yes, here's somebody who's trusted and obeyed. And you convert. And then what happens? The son gets taken ill and the son dies. And that often seems to happen, doesn't it, in, in Christian life anyway? Somebody who we are praying for, somebody who's just come to, to faith and we think, great, just a, a time of stability, a time to let their faith develop and something occurs and we question it, don't we? And what happens, do you notice, with the widow and Elijah? They're both somewhat perplexed, aren't we? The widow she says, goodness, um, have you come, Elijah, to expose all my sins? And Elijah, he's obviously perplexed as well. But you notice what Elijah does. He does the only thing that he knows to do in a situation like that. He prays to God. In verse 18, firstly, he brings the widow's anguish before God. And then he pleads with God to restore the boy. And I was reading a commentary on this, Dale Ralph Davis, who's written a, a, a commentary on this, and he um, has these words for this situation and the situation we often find ourselves in. And he says, we don't have an answer often, but we have a throne to approach. And that indeed is what Elijah did. Um, he pleaded with God to restore the boy. And God hears Elijah's prayer, and the boy is restored. And of course, we kind of knew that was going to happen. God had promised in verse 14 he was going to give life and he was going to, give, he was going to sustain the widow and her son. And now he's brought that promise to fulfillment. And so at the end of chapter, in chapter and verse 24, we have the, what this has all been leading up to, isn't it? It's the proclamation by the widow when she says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Is there a God? Yes, there is. This is the promise being fulfilled, and this woman recognizes it. And God has shown that He is the God over life and death. It's a message is given into the heart of pagan territory that the only God who offers life is the God. There is only one God. You don't need Baal. You mustn't follow Baal. So there we have it. And um, the word of God has come to the widow. But through all of this, Elijah has been getting trained for next week. And we've seen a lot. We've learned a lot about God. We've learned God is a God who keeps his promises. We've learned that God is a God who protects. God is a God who provides. God is a God who has power over life and death. God is a God who listens and answers prayer. And what does God call us to do? What did he call Elijah to do? He called Elijah to trust and obey, to walk by faith and not by sight. And that's what he's calling us to do today as we learn about him here. Will we too trust and obey? Will we walk by faith? and not by sight. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this reminder that you are God, that you are the one who is in control, that you are the one who has made all these promises in the Bible, 
promises that are true and promises that you will fulfill. And so we ask this coming week that we will indeed come to your word, that we will read it, and that we will respond by walking in faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen.